Ladies and gentlemen, gremlins, germs, trolls, aliens, and my dog Minnie, who's right here as my audience, including yourself, welcome to The Daily Marketer. Daily Marketer is your weekly dose of growth marketing for the everyday founder or startup marketer. Welcome, everyone. We decided for season two to do something a little different. Instead of dropping principles, tactics, tools, and ideas for growing your startup, we thought, why don't we bring on a collection of people that are either, one, growing their business, two, actual growth practitioners or consultants and have, you know, have deep experience in growing a customer user base, or three, are subject matter experts in a subsect of marketing. Think affiliate marketing, branding, SEO. Let's have them come on the show and let's suck their brain and get that knowledge out for you so you can use it for your startup. Our guest for today is Colin Smith. Colin Smith is a marketing leader at Fisher Investments, where he has an emphasis on employer branding and culture. Prior to working in the financial services industry, Colin actually worked in the music industry at Cinderblock, which is a major media uh, merchandising and marketing agency with clients like Green Day, Radiohead, The Killers, and The Smashing Pumpkins. Love Radiohead. Here, he implemented creative integrated marketing campaigns before the major adoption of the internet, driving repeated merch and album sales while developing diehard fans. As you can imagine, Colin has a deep love for music and has always believed brands outline an identity for people that creates a subconscious affinity. I can believe that. Colin originally cut his marketing teeth at a company called Serial Killers, where he built his foundation in branding and the ability to build a brand through design, experience, and participation. Colin holds a bachelor's in business and corporate communications from the University of Maryland. For anyone who knows or meets Colin, uh, we can all agree that he is a master of human psychology and influence, something that has led him to craft his professional path, whether that's in the financial services industry or the music industry. Together during this episode, we were able to answer the million dollar question, how do you cultivate a fanatic fan? Whether that's a concert attendee, customer, or monthly active user, I don't doubt you're gonna find this applicable and worthwhile to your startup or business. If you had to ask me, who is this episode valuable for? I would say it's for anyone who wants to build a world-class brand. Think of an Apple or a Disney, but maybe you don't know where to start. Through this episode, Colin provides you the right perspective to, to approach this from and three key tactics at your fingertips, which you'll find out soon. Also, please, if you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button below. And if you really enjoyed this episode, share with a friend, perhaps someone who has talked about building a world-class brand, but like I said, they, do, they don't know where to start. By hitting the subscribe button below, you tr you help us grow tremendously, uh, the Daily Marketer. So thank you. As a bonus for anyone who signs up, who subscribes, you're gonna be thrown into a raffle for a hundred dollar Amazon gift card. What? That we're gonna announce every other week. So please make sure you hit that subscribe button. All right, enjoy the episode, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Hey, Colin, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm actually going to start in a 
little more unconventional way, uh, given your background. So what influence did music have on your career and who you are today? Because before you worked at the financial services firm that you're at now, that you've been at for 14 years, you were actually in the music industry and you entered the music industry at a really pivotal time in uh, just 2001, 2000. Isn't that right? Well, actually, I started working in the music industry when I was 14. So that would have been sometime in the mid-90s, we'll say. And I started touring with bands uh, at that age. And it was I mean, it was really impactful for me because I think one of the things is being so young in the industry like that, I knew I needed to learn responsibility really quickly. And I needed to really pay attention to everything that was kind of going on around me because I was just a little kid and no one was going to really listen to what I had to say unless I really knew what it was that I was talking about. But I've grown up with music. I've experienced music my whole life. I still continue to help some friends out with their own music projects and, and different things that they have going on today. But yeah, music has really kind of influenced who I am. And a lot of that's about how do you go about building an audience? How do you cater to that audience? How do you kind of really build fanaticism within within mm-hmm. people? Uh, these are all kind of really critical to, to the overall work that I do. How did you start working in music industry when you were 14? I had a friend's band who, uh, who was, uh, I was friends with a band in high school and they had a record deal and they just started kind of touring, touring the country and they were, they were a bit older than I was. But I just started working with them on the side, on the weekends, that type of thing. And then I did my first cross country tour, I'm going to say when I was maybe 15 um, or 16 years old. So the band was doing well. Yeah, the band was well enough to go yeah. out and, and kind of tour, but it was still, it was one of those tours where you were in a van, you know, a van with a trailer, that type of thing. I didn't get on a tour buses until, until a few years later. But yeah, I mean, they, they started, they did well. They were, you know, really creative, really talented. Uh, and I grew up in New Jersey, right outside of, of New York City. I was kind of a, a bridge and tunnel kid um, going in at the tail end of the New York City hardcore scene. What's a bridge you, and tunnel kid mean? It just means that you're you're not from the city, but you're but you're always there because of the bridges and the tunnels. It means that, got it, yeah. yeah like yeah. you take a train or a bus in. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Got exactly. It. I was maybe maybe a half hour outside of outside of Manhattan, so I would go in all the time, and mm-hmm. and really anyone that kind of grew up in that New York City hardcore scene was really impacted by it because they had they had a lot of really strong messages positive mental attitude that was that was a big thing pma was a a big thing um surrounding people and that's something that i still kind of carry with me today through all that we're doing could you describe what the hardcore scene was and and even what what pma is within that i mean the scene was you had for new york city um you had the late 1970s you had the whole punk scene came through with artists like Blondie and and the Ramones and all that type of stuff. And then later on, you had what was known as the hardcore scene. And kind of one of the big differences between the hardcore scene and the, and the punk scene, as people would say, is that the punk scene was all about complaining about problems and the hardcore scene was about addressing them. But the big thing that you ended up finding through the entire scene is that, you, I mean, you had people who were homeless and you had people who were you know dealing with addiction and all these types of things and this was the place that 
they kind of would find each other and lift each other up. And so it all became about that kind of positive mental attitude or the PMA, because that's what the whole scene was. was it wasn't necessarily about the family that you that you have, but the one that you find through all of these different people. And that, And that's something that that kind of culture is and the impact of that culture is something that that's really influenced a lot of my work and not just dealing with marketing, but dealing with culture work within organizations. What were some bands that were part of the the hardcore scene? Uh, Well, you had artists, you had smaller artists, you had artists like Gorilla Biscuits, Sick of It All, those types of things. Um, But as well, you had artists like the Beastie Boys Mm -hmm. who were part of the scene even though they did they did mostly hip-hop in fact there's always been a lot of kind of connection between between the new york city hip-hop scene and the and the hardcore scene particularly behind behind the scenes within all the different labels and all that type of thing but you had you had a lot of that kind of influence and then and then i think the kind of funny thing is is you never really saw those artists kind of move on or get much bigger. I mean, artists like Chromags or Agnostic Front, they all kind of stayed within the scene, but they're still still around today, still able to tour today, still able to to continue to kind of make a, make a bit of, of a living off of it. But it it really was pretty impactful for anyone anyone growing up in New York at the time. Even if you weren't part of the scene, you were you're really familiar with it, and um, and you kind of knew the influence that it had. It sounds like it sounds like music was uh was a it pulled you in right i mean i mean there's there's people that have jobs and they think oh you know i should become an accountant or a lawyer because it's reliable and stable but then there's there's other careers that i mean i think everyone has it it, it pulls them in and they gravitate towards it what made you gravitate towards uh, the music scene and being involved in that at such an early age I mean, I always, I always really liked the music. I mean, first and foremost, I thought it was really great, but I also really liked um, the overall culture kind of behind it about how, particularly for artists like this, it was pretty much, they outlined a particular identity that everyone could have. And particularly, I thought it was great how it appealed to, to individuals that were struggling. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a homeless kid, you have a lot of problems uh, that you that you have to deal with. And this is, this became a really kind of safe place for you to be able to go to and and continue to thrive in. And, and a lot of the general idea around it as well was just around creativity. It was about, you know, starting your own band, doing your own thing, a, a real kind of DIY ethic. And that, and that's always been, been really, really impactful. And I, I know that you kind of have talked about the idea of being scrappy. That's really critical to the, to the entire scene, and, and the culture there was was about kind of being scrappy and and putting those things together. And you know that scene, you know, really was was a strong foundation to artists for um, for decades. Uh, and as you saw the the explosion of punk in the in the nineties and in two thousands, they were all you know heavily influenced by by all the different stuff that was kind of going on at the time. What was your role? Was it really defined uh, when you're with that band? So when I first started and I was doing touring, I would do merchandise or tech, uh, like guitar or drum tech or tour management, that type of thing. But I stayed in merchandise. I went and worked for a, I went and worked for a clothing company for, for a long time that had, we did a lot of artist sponsorship. We sponsored artists like uh, everyone from like Eminem to Blink-182 to Slayer. Uh, and so what was we the did, company? Uh, they were called Serial Killer. Okay. Um, they were a streetwear company uh, based out of California, Southern California. 
And we had, uh, this was back in the late 90s, um, early 2000s. So we did a lot of sponsorship. I, I put together a, a music compilation that we ended up selling through all the different retail stores, um, places like Hot Topic, um, Zoomies, like you name it. Yeah, um, wow. And, and uh and so we had um and we had artists like at the drive-in on there right as they were as they were starting and then i continued on and worked in merchandise for a long time and so merchandising and licensing and we really did everything except for um the record itself uh, and so we would have to do design of merchandise um helping out with website design handling tour stuff handling all sorts of things um and our real big skill set at the time or the big reason why artists would hire us was uh, because we were really really great at turning fans into fanatics using merchandise and other branded aspects well yeah and and just you know the overall marketing marketing strategy your brand strategy your experience all of those types of things and and so that you know we worked with uh, you know, a wide variety of artists at the time, um, and including la- uh, helping launch artists like The Killers. That work led me to work with artists like Jay Z or Radiohead. We, we just kind of had we had a good understanding of it, and the whole thing was, you know, you you had you had two different types of fans. You had the casual fan that would go to a single concert and they would buy like a souvenir. Right. So they would buy like the T-shirt with just the tour dates on the back. Or you had the fanatic who would go to maybe 10 shows and they would buy every single piece of, yeah. of merchandise. And so that was what we were really kind of good at. How do we go about mm. cultivating that those kind of fanatics and, and mm. that, that fanaticism among our artists? Um, and that was a really big, big kind of component of, of what we were and what we were all about. And that promise that we were able to make to artists. So, so what, did you start to see that there's a science to cultivating that type of an, an audience, that that a, a fanatic? Yeah, and, I mean, c- certainly yeah. there are there are aspects. I mean, it's not a perfect science. Sure, but particularly for things like artists, you want to make sure that an artist is, is relatable, or a, and this all applies to a brand. So you can think of it like a brand, right? A brand overall has to be relatable. Somebody has to kind of have that understanding of it. Then a big component was all about exclusivity. I mean, people love exclusivity and they love access as well. And so exclusivity and access are, are two really kind of critical components. And, and that's what has made things like, uh, you know, us weekly or people magazine popular for so long and now you have all the the social media and all that type of stuff is that everybody wants to know that little bit of information that that you know maybe the other person next to them i'm in on it sort of a thing right yeah exactly i'm in the know yeah yeah and then the final thing is participation right how can they participate within the brand itself and that's where you kind of can get to that point of them kind of co-opting that that overall identity, right? It wasn't about buying the one T-shirt. It was about buying all of them because the artist represented kind of who they were and what they mm-hmm. were all about. And you were part of it together with them. Yeah, identifying absolutely. With it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so for for an artist, it was really really key. I mean, for, from their standpoint, they have they always have to kind of maintain this balance between understanding what kind of understanding who they are and putting that out there and serving their audience. And so if, if they ended up just making music for themselves, and I mean, we saw this, we worked with Radiohead and uh, when Radiohead 
got popular, I got to tell you, every band wanted to sound like Radiohead. And the problem with that is that they started kind of making the music for themselves and they ended mm. up alienating their audience. Radiohead did or the or, bands, oh, all, the yeah, other bands. all the other bands wanted to kind of be like them. So how do you go about making uh, so you, you kind of have to continue to make artists for yourself or the art for yourself. You have to make yeah. the product for yourself. You don't want to alien. You don't want to do it too much because then you alienate your audience. If you make it strictly about your audience, then it's all about um, then you basically sell out. Yeah. Right. And, and it becomes all about them and it becomes watered down and, and it doesn't necessarily have any of that personality anymore. And so for artists, it's all about kind of navigating that kind of balance between between doing what's what's right for you as an artist and, and kind of doing what's right for your audience. Yeah, I, I have a follow up question to how do you cultivate a fanatic? But a side note. So I, I used to watch and, and go to shows for Portugal, the man before. That mm-hmm. one song came out recently. I, I I can't remember the name, but it, it's you hear it all all the time on the radio. And uh, they had been making music, I think, since two thousand two or two thousand one. And they're really prolific. I mean, they they release an album every year uh, up until I listened to them a lot, and that was probably two thousand eight. And I remember going to one of their last concerts. I think the reason why I stopped going to their concerts is because. It felt like in the shows, they started to, they, they literally their body language, when they would be doing the show, they would start playing towards each other. Like they were kind of in like a, like, like in a ritual, like, like yeah. they were just jamming. Right. And they mm-hmm. weren't facing the audience anymore. And uh, it kind of turned off the audience a little bit. And I, I felt that, but it feels like a good analogy for that balance. That's really hard to hit that you're describing between the band doing and making creating music and representing and expressing itself versus doing it for the audience and and trying to find that place and sometimes like a pendulum you'll you'll lean more towards one than the other yeah absolutely and and the sweet spot is really kind of navigating um, both right it's really right. about kind of blending the two together and and again i mean that's probably true for for any uh company in your brand as well because you have to make sure that your brand that your company that you are relatable that you are are providing that kind of access and information to people that you're kind of making exclusives and kind of doing all of those things and then allowing them to participate how do you kind of make them be brand advocates for you mm-hmm. um and that all of that work really kind of spawned. I mean, when you start to think about social media marketing and all the different aspects that people are talking about now, I mean, a lot of that was was what we were doing through through music. And this was really before social media had had taken off. Artists really didn't have all those tools um, that they have now uh, yeah. in order to kind of cultivate who they are. But even even now, it's it's it always reaches its own equilibrium. It's like. Uh market efficiency theory right everyone has the tools now so it's now that much that much harder to push through the noise that everyone's hearing and identify with something that is actually authentic and true and and speaks to them right yeah exactly exactly and i think that's a really good point too about or the all of that work has kind of led me into that balance between marketing and culture work Mm -hmm. Uh, and exactly like you were saying how do you go about kind of finding that balance it's like well you you have to make sure that your culture and your marketing are really well connected because if yep. they're not then your marketing can be making a promise to your audience and your culture or the the experience that they end up receiving your your customer ends up receiving um, isn't fulfilling on that promise 
right? And that's where things start to kind of fall apart. They have to be fully, fully aligned and kind of connected. And so I've always been kind of drawn to that balance between, between marketing and leadership. Right? Yeah. How, how do you, how do you kind of maintain those two things? Mm-hmm. So, so let's go back to how to cultivate a, a, a fanatic. So you mentioned three, maybe four things, relatable, exclusive slash accessible, and then three uh, participatory or yeah. a participant shell. So let's let's break each one of those down. So so what what does it mean for let's just for a band? Like how do you make it relatable? What maybe if you can give it an example to paint a picture. Well, I think I think a lot about it being relatable is is you do have to be authentic and you have to be earnest. And now you have more tools than ever in order to accomplish that. Um, your social media is providing that access kind of behind the scenes into who you are. And, and part of that is to make sure that you're actually living out what your brand is um, and, and maintaining that overall kind of, kind of authenticity, e- even if it is a bit of a persona. And oftentimes yeah. that's the case. So um, I've, been, I've been doing a lot of work with a good friend of mine now, and he's, he's a bit of a character. Um, but he's a musician. He's one of the highest selling independent artists of all time, um, or his band is, uh, owns a record label, kind of an icon. Mm -hmm. Um, but he's incredibly authentic with kind of who he is. And that's, that can be kind of good and bad at a time at, at different times, but, um, but people kind of know what to expect. And so part of it is, is you want to be building trust. And you want yeah. to be establishing that. And so as you're outlining, you know, this is kind of what I am and this is what I'm all about. And you have to be showing and and reflecting that and kind of reinforcing it and making sure that that you're kind of leaving the door open for, for other people. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that there are three independent buckets, the, the relatability, the exclusive access and the mm-hmm. participation. They all kind of have to, have to work together mm-hmm. um, is a way to think about that. Yeah. So like, for example, I think about Amazon a lot because there's 50% of people who live in the city work, work there up here in Seattle and they, they have their, their leadership values, right? They're these 13 sure. values that everyone has to live by. And when they interview, each person is given one of these values and they really have to vet for it. Uh, do, do you think this is something that's considered relatable or is it something that's considered more access, exclusivity? How would that fall into? Because that, that's that's a really true element of their culture, even if it's just something that some people might think is for show. I, I think the thing is, the thing about understanding culture is that uh, there's a lot of misperception about culture. And in fact, um, if, if you were to get 100 people in a room and ask them to explain what the word culture is, uh, you're likely to hear crickets, right? We talk about the word a lot, but we don't yeah. really have, have a good definition for it. Um, and oftentimes what people think of when they think of culture is they'll either think of things like, um, you know, some overall employee happiness type thing or, or, uh, those types of aspects like ping pong table. But, but, you know, nowadays we're starting to think more and more about culture as being a set of values. Um, and, but your culture has to be a lot more than that. I mean, your values can exist. And in fact, Webster's used to define culture as a a set of shared beliefs. But 
organizations can have good cultures or bad cultures. And can you like envision a scenario where a group of people gets together and says, hey, let's all share these terrible beliefs? Right. Right. Like that's not the case. Yeah, right? No. Your culture exists regardless of what your beliefs are, regardless of what your yeah. values are. Um, so I like to think of culture as the way an organization thinks, behaves and communicates. Right. And so you have to control mm-hmm. each kind of aspect of that. How are we thinking? How are we behaving? And how are we communicating that? Uh, and and so it's great that Amazon is weaving the values into their interview process and all those types of things, but they have to be living them all throughout. So in an ideal world, when you build a good culture, you tie the way you think, the way you behave and the way you communicate to your values. Mm-hmm. Right. So your values are driving them, but your values are still an independent thing of your culture unless you connect unless you connect those three things together. Yeah. And so that that really is how, how you can get how you can outline what's what's relatable, because you, you want you do still want to kind of establish those shared beliefs. You want people to believe in what you believe in and you want to attract people who believe in what you believe in. And then if um, people believe in what you believe in, they'll buy your product. Right. That's that's yeah. a whole big aspect. But the way that you have to do that is is by really mapping your culture to your beliefs and make, and being really definitive for, for how, how you want to go about go about doing that and really, really intentional uh, along the way. Yeah, it seems like you have to dive pretty deep to, to, to figure out how to make your brand relatable it goes to the to the why right to the same cynic why i feel like you you have to do the exercise or you have to have some sort of existential experience to go oh that's why we're doing this right like and and there needs to be that passion and that zeal in everyone's voice when they do communicate about it this is why we're here this is why we write the lyrics that we do or this is why we travel the country and we don't just want fans like like we are doing it because we're we're building the community yeah. Well, and, and that why has to still be relatable. People, people have right. to be able to understand that and they have to be able to get it and you have to be able to kind of simply explain it to, to your audiences. Yeah. Um, and that's hard. That's difficult to do. I mean, Simon Sinek kind of talks about, talks about that overall model and the benefits you have, but, but oftentimes I, I think about this as, um, you know, belief based marketing. Mm-hmm. Right. And and when you're using your beliefs at kind of the center of, of your marketing, and particularly if you have a real strong culture to back it up, that's usually the most powerful and impactful form of form of marketing. And when you think about the companies that do it well, um, you know, like Nike, right, or Disney, Apple, Apple right? Yeah. Apple used to for a long time. Right. Um, yeah. And then and then they started to fall off. One of the so I, I you know I always think about branding as there are three types of branding, right? You have your um, beliefs based branding, which is which is you know by far your most impactful. Um, you have your feature benefit, whereas here's my product and the feature that it has and the benefit to you as a client. Yep. Right. You as a customer. And the example I usually use is like Glad trash bags. Yep. Right, and they're always like, you know, dry, buy our trash bags because they don't break. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very logical type of argument, right? That's a logical form of marketing, and oftentimes th- that's something that you know people who who are maybe less emotional leaders they, they tend they tend to kind of be drawn to that very logical aspect. Yeah. Um, but the reality of it is, 
when you're in the grocery store and you're buying trash bags, you tend not to actually worry about, you know, Glad or whatever the other brand is. You tend to just buy the one that's on sale. Yeah. Right? And so, so it really doesn't, it really doesn't make that impact that you, that you like. Um, the second form is emotional, right? What's the emotional uh, type of marketing? And, mm-hmm. and the, the example I, I usually use is uh, thinking back a few years, but you had the Sarah McLaughlin uh, ASPCA commercials, mm-hmm. right? And they would show these animals in, in distress and they would play this really sad, you know, Sarah McLaughlin song over it. And it was really, really kind of, kind of heartwarming. Yeah. Um, and it, it, but it got to the point too where I remember reading that Sarah herself uh, changed the channel when they started coming on because it was it was too too much it was too dramatic uh, yeah. even for her. Um, I, so I the, think a company that does that really well or organizations is uh, foster parents fostering a kid. Yeah. Uh, they they just really hit you hard. I mean, everyone feels like they they, they go and end up and watching lots of commercials or yeah website pages with kids that look super cute and, and no, really and need non-profit, a home. Yeah, nonprofits yeah. use that a lot. I mean, yeah. I, I also think one company that uses it all the time, and and this is kind of a way to think about it is, um, is I, you know, I think Geico. Mm-hmm. I, Geico probably has more marketing than any other insurance company out there. And they use humor, right? Humor is right. an emotional appeal. Yeah, you feel good when yeah, you're laughing. Exactly. Yeah. But the but the thing about the humor, the thing about Geico is that the only reason why you really remember it being a Geico ad is because of the repetition, because they play them over and over and over, um, or they they have the same joke that they tell in different ways yeah. over and over and over. But the reality is, oftentimes the emotional appeal or the emotional side of marketing isn't necessarily tied to your product. Yeah. So that's why Geico advertises, I think, more than anybody else, right? And they're not even the largest insurance company, right? Right. But yeah. they have to have that repetition in, in order for it to come out and they make it enjoyable and they have that big emotional appeal because it is so funny. But again, like there's kind of, there's always kind of a disconnect between, between the overall product uh, and, and the messaging that you have. And that's where the belief base really, really kind of connects when you think about a company like Nike, right? Nike's yeah. not advertising um, the aspects of their shoe and the benefit to you. They're not sitting and saying like, you're going to jump higher, or you're going to run faster, or you're going to do any of that type of stuff. They're not describing their product through their marketing. What they're doing is, is they're creating this overall culture and this, and these overall beliefs, right? They have this fundamental belief that if you have a body, you are an athlete, Mm -hmm. right? And so therefore we're all athletes. Yeah. And, uh, and so you see that you see, even for their professional sponsorship and everything, their whole campaigns are all about you being the athlete and you standing alongside them. Right. And, and those beliefs have, led to huge cultural shifts. I mean, they, they were really the ones that that kicked off um, the concept of, uh, I mean, even jogging and that type of stuff is, and running as exercise, right? I mean, mm-hmm. back when they when, back when they first started, that wasn't necessarily the case. And they really kind of drove that home. Um, and they still do it really well today. And, and you mentioned Apple. Apple started off that way with all their advertisements. Um, yep. And that was something that Steve Jobs was really, really good at. But as time goes on, now you see them moving more and more into kind of feature benefit. 
Yeah, well, what was that really famous one, uh, the 1984 one, uh, where it was them against IBM? I mean, that was the subconscious. Yeah, their first advertisement yeah. was 19, 1984, and then they had the Think Different campaign. Right. Right yeah. later on, which was which was really impactful. And when you hear Steve Jobs talk about it, he talks all about it. It he talks about it, mm. about it being the beliefs, about that being kind of the overall purpose driven. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, you know, your purpose again, it has to be understandable. It has to be relatable, and you do want to have a good understanding of what your beliefs are, and then you want to tell those good stories that engage your audience and kind of bring them through it to explain it along the way. And and those are usually the biggest things and the examples I always think of is like, okay, if I were to ask you what does um, like what does uh, Nike believe in, most people can answer that. And if I'm like, okay, what does Reebok believe in? Uh, I don't know, <laughs> right? Yeah. Most yeah. people kind of struggle with that. Or like if you look at Disneyland versus Six Flags, right? There are certain expectations that you have around Disneyland, right? It's the happiest place on earth. Yeah. And you expect there to be a certain level of service all the way through. And when you compare that to something like Six Flags, like you're not going to get that. Right. Yeah. And so that's where these beliefs make such a big impact because, you know, they're really long term and they serve the brand for such a long time. So so there's belief based. Then you mentioned feature advantage benefit and then emotional. Is those yeah. the, the three? Yeah. Yeah. Those, those are typically the three that I, that I like to kind of bucket bucket things in of how to build a brand or how brands build themselves. Yeah. And, and usually, usually they kind of focus on, on one area or the other. I mean, I'm a firm believer in, in belief-based marketing, but a lot of it's about understanding what your goals are and being yeah. prescriptive to reach those goals. Because if, if you're a, a small mom and pop shop, you might not necessarily have, have the ideas of this big, huge, overarching brand and, and kind of dedicating yourself to it. It might be much more about, you know, how am I selling product in, in the yeah. moment? And, and that's kind of feature benefit type stuff that, that, you, would be, that you would be looking to do. Um, and so a lot of it's about kind of understanding what's right for you. And, and the real key to that is, is getting a firm understanding of what your goals are and then designing everything to, to reach that. Yeah. So let's go back. So we covered relatable so let's let's break down exclusivity uh, in access. What's mm-hmm. either either what, what's what's a case example from uh, your your music industry experience, maybe a specific band, uh, or you know even even for a, a brand that you're working with right now. Well, a lot of it. I mean, I I, I would think a lot of it is you, it's kind of helps explain the idea of of kind of hitting those tipping points and the idea of fear of missing out. Mm-hmm. Right, and that's such so a big scarcity. Thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's such a big thing for for um, people and individuals is that you know I want to really get a good um, I'm going to get a really good understanding of um, some having something or having some information that that other people don't have, and and I always joke about it. Um, there's a good Frank Turner quote about how um, everybody wants to be the man, even the girls. <laughs> and the, but it's kind of part of that idea about how, how you're you're feeding into the overall ego, right? And so yeah. you, the individuals, we want to know something that other people don't know, yep. right? We want to kind of have that depth of knowledge around things because, you know, we can use that and that, that feeds our own kind of ego for, for kind of who we are. But that's also, that also helps outline what our, what our overall identity is, right? And, and helps kind of shape all of those aspects. Um, 
And so exclusive access is, is really a good, good example. I mean, I always think about it like, um, at my at my current company, we've had a website that outlines a lot of you know market knowledge, and we and we share all this information about understanding the economy and understanding investing and understanding all of these different aspects. And I've always argued that uh, we need to start selling this content. We should be giving it away for for free. Hmm. Um, and if we sell it, even if it's for you know five dollars or whatever, but then give it to our clients for free. Yeah. Now all of a sudden there's a value to it and they're they're significantly more likely to read it and they're yeah. significantly more likely to to kind of pay attention to it. And even though the monetary reward isn't necessarily very much, it's yeah. the act that they're getting something that that isn't widely available that really does really does kind of make a big difference. Yeah. It reminds me of club entry. The clubs that are the better yeah. better clubs, they, they have the $20 entry and then you go inside and they really do feel like, or maybe you're tricking yourself that, oh, it, it, this place is more quality. You know, the, the people are better. For guys, it's there's more women here. You know, and maybe yeah. they do, do control for that. They balance the guys to girls in, in a club. Uh, yeah, that's that's really interesting. So, so when you're referencing the current company you're working at maybe the, the the blog that the company runs because uh, yeah. because I I personally have gotten a lot of value from reading the blog and keeping me from making any emotional decisions <laughs> from reading it you know good. good yeah it serves this point but but you would you understand that because you yeah. work there and you kind of have that experience and, and yeah. you can kind of understand the value behind it but but for somebody who isn't as familiar with with the brand or the company, or is, is you're not going to necessarily come right out of the gates with that trust. Right. Yeah. Right? And, and I mean, and that's the point of it being free is that let me give you value first. It's the classic content marketing. Uh, yeah. I'll give you value first. And then, you know, maybe later you'll become a client with us, but we've built the trust through giving you all this value. Yeah. And that, and that is, that is a great, you know, overarching aspect. Um, but there are other ways to do that. I mean, you want to be really right. specific and, and direct with how you go about approaching that. Whereas something that's a lot more, I mean, the thing about an overall blog is that people can kind of come and go. They don't have to actually uh, subscribe in order to get more information unless you have some sort of upselling thing, which which would work out well. But but yeah. having some sort of paid model kind of, kind of makes a big difference. And kind of like how you were talking about, it's always better for an artist to sell out a club even if it's a smaller one, yep. than to to play to a half a half empty place because if you're playing to a half empty arena, and I've seen artists do this where they end up having to play uh, at an arena in particular towns because they end up selling their tour to an overall promoter like Golden Voice or something, hmm. and their only option is to play um, is to play in town. I were in Portland. And I saw uh, you know one of my friends' bands play at the Moda Center. And the very Big, first huge they, place, right? Huge place, yeah. And the very first thing they said is, "Next time we're going to do two nights at the biggest, uh, you know, nightclub here. Yeah. Way smaller, but doing two nights there is going to be more valuable than and more powerful too, and more yeah. and more powerful. And and they knew that, and they kind of understood that. And then and then you have scarcity. I need to rush out, and I need to get this ticket. I don't want to miss this event. Yeah, right. And so that kind of scarcity is is really really key. And so, so uh, you know, those things are, are, you know, really great, great components to kind of help driving and kind of understanding it. Oftentimes what I see is, you know, from a brand or marketing standpoint, it's people, people from the company, from your company, you can't have that kind of fear of missing out. 
you, you can't have that fear of, well, what if somebody would have bought our product if only XYZ happened? Yeah. And it's like you, you that leads to this whole kind of behavior of like, well, we're going to now try to appeal to everyone. Right. And so you right. end up becoming um, in your attempt to appeal to everyone, you become, you know, like nothing to anyone. Right. right. And it's much better to be targeted with who you're doing. And it's like, OK, we're going to be really kind of crystal clear about our audience and try to serve this audience as best as possible. And yeah. we understand that there are going to be some other audiences on the fringes that likely would be interested in this and likely would be would be Im- impacted by this. But we're going to hit our target audience and then we can kind of use our target audience as our advocates to push it, push it beyond that. But you, you have to have that faith and you have to have that belief. Yeah, right. The the go, going niche first, uh, absolutely, and, and and making that compromise. No, it's not going to be the ninety percent over here. It's going to be the ten percent right in front of us. We we can define them really clearly. We can understand them. We can speak to them. And you know what? It's not an audience of two billion people. It's an audience of maybe ten million, uh, maybe and maybe five million, maybe a million. That's also a lot easier for us to wrap our head around too, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and a lot of it too. I mean, when I when I was thinking about overall design work, I, I think about the the thing about design is that design for me is the art of intention. And the difference between design and art is that in design, you're intending for your audience to experience something. Mm-hmm. In art, you leave that interpretation, right? And those conclusions up to your audience. Hmm. Right. I'm going to put this out right. there and I'm going to you, you let you don't fill the it. gaps. Right. Yeah, exactly. For design, you're very intentional about what they're experiencing. And you like fill the gaps. Yeah. And we were kind of talking about um, uh, prior to this is we were talking about that overall idea of control. Right. Your brand and your design work is all about control. I'm going to control the experience for this audience and I understand and can empathize with this audience well enough and I can be authentic with them. So that they're going to relate to what it is that I'm doing and I'm going to control their experience all the way through. And in fact, your audience, when you do it really well, they like that control. They right. like the, so going back to music, if the, what's the ticketing experience going to be like? Mm-hmm. Right? How am I promoting my overall tour? Am I releasing songs? Am I doing live snippets on this? How am I, how am I communicating with my audience all the way through, right? All of that's about designing an overall experience that's going to that's going to make a difference. Like you were talking about stage presence, right? How am I going to maintain stage presence? How much banter do I need to have versus you know the yeah. actual song planks? What's the song order that I'm going to go through? Yep. I remember we had we had worked with um, Green Day, and I remember. A long time ago, they did the Pop Disaster Tour, a co-headlining tour with them and Blink-182. Mm. And Blink was certainly on the way up. Uh, at this time, they were one of the biggest bands in the world. And and Green Day hadn't had an album uh, in a number of years. They were kind of on a bit of a, a hiatus. And the original conversation was all about um, how do you, or, you know, like first let's alternate who closes out the night. Is it going to be Blink or is it going to be Green Day? Mm-hmm. And Green Day was smart enough to say, you know what, Blink, we'll let you close out the night every night because we want to play second to last. And what that meant is that everybody that went to that concert was there to see Green Day. 
right? Because the Green Day fans would leave for Blink-182, hmm. right? But the Blink-182 fans were going to be there for Green Day. And then Green Day made sure that they had a stage show that was so strong that was so impactful that people would leave still talking about them. Yeah. They were still going to be remembered. Um, and they nailed it. And that really started to create that kind of foundation for them to release their next album, which was American Idiot, which again put Green Day back on the top of the podium, um, for, podium for you know biggest band in the world, right? Because when that yeah. album came out, right album, right time. But they also had this great tour experience ahead of that that led into it. Right. And so all of those things were, were really well connected. Yeah. Um, and I remember working on that tour and and, you know, what are the different aspects that, that kind of we can do? What are all those details that we can fulfill along the way and serve our overall audience, um, you know, with what the, what this band is. Right. Or, or what yeah. the brand is. Um, and so those, you know, those were all kind of kind of really, really key. And so. So the the trick to all of this is trying to it is trying to design right, trying to control that overall experience from start to finish, right? How do you control it from a marketing and advertising standpoint? How do you control it from a sales standpoint? How do you control it from a service standpoint? Yeah, right, and everything in between. And this is that balance then between understanding your you know between your marketing and your culture. Yeah, it's, it sounds like you really have to be uh, you have to act as a conductor does for their orchestra for for, for the band and and you know absolutely the, the flutes are playing over here right now and did we do that too early last time let's do it a little bit later now and you know they need to be a little bit louder the trombones and let's lift that up and uh, like yeah and then how do, how do they tell the jokes and how do they pause and go yeah. to the next song it's yeah, it's, exactly. it's like you you literally you Colin are helping to, to say, Hey, I'm going to be the conductor here. Let me do it because it's, it's, we're going to have a much better outcome by doing it. And here, maybe I'll explain really quickly of why. And then they go, okay, I get it. Yeah, please. That's exactly what we need. Yeah. And and, and that's exactly how you go about thinking about hiring a a creative or or a marketing Mm. partner, right? Is you want to find that person that's going to be the right conductor because it's typically, it's not one big thing that makes, that makes a difference. Um, Like one big thing or one hit song is a one hit wonder, right? And and you have your short-term success and then it goes away. Um, You want the long-term success. And in order to do that, you have to have a series of smaller events that all add up to something bigger, right? Yeah. The whole has to add up to more than the individual components. That's all about what kind of branding is. And that's all about, um, uh, you know, gaining that that understanding. And and as a, as a business owner, you, you kind of have to go about um, thinking of it that way and thinking about how you can control it. And, and in reality, it's not so much if you neglect any of those pieces, right, you neglect your marketing or your advertising or your or your sales or your customer service or any of the back-end operations that you need in order to make make this successful, your customers are going to feel it. Yeah. Right. And so you have you have to, that's what that whole kind of idea of a leader is. You have to make sure that you are that you're kind of managing and understanding this all along the way. And so you have to understand what your, what are your goals and objectives are and make sure that that's communicated all throughout the whole process and then figure out how, how do we go about explaining that to, um, 
you know, are, are different audiences. And and maybe there are different stories that you're telling based off of the different audience that you have, like different genres of music. I did a lot of work on on hip hop as well as on, on the rock side. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way you would go about approaching that is very different because the audiences are different, the culture is different, and, yep. and what people value and what they're excited by is very different. Hey, sexy ladies and gentlemen, that was part one to our two-part conversation with our guest. Arguably, the second half is actually better than the first, so I suggest you go and listen to that. Also, before you go, I want to ask you for one small favor. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please help grow the show with me by either one, reviewing on Apple Podcasts, or two, subscribing to the show. To give you a little background to why those two, it's because both have a material effect in growing the ranking of the show in podcast categories through the iTunes podcast ranking system, similar to how Google search ranks and organizes top sites for a specific search. To sweeten the deal, we're going to do something a little special. If you review the show on Apple Podcasts, I'm going to enter you into a $50 Amazon gift card raffle, which we're going to announce the winner of every other Thursday. It's simple. Review the show on Apple Podcasts. It's that little purple podcast app on your phone. Scroll to the bottom of the show and hit add review. 10 words, 10 seconds, very easy. You'll be entered into a $50 Amazon gift card raffle, which we're going to announce the winner of every other Thursday. It's free money, y'all. You got to love that. If you wouldn't mind doing that, that would be freaking amazing. Thank you. Take care and good night.